Hi there, this is Jeff Edgers. Fifty years ago, the Rolling Stones headlined a free concert that ended in chaos, violence, and death. It was called Altamont. I spent the last eight months reporting on it to try to understand what it meant and why everything went so wrong. I talked to everybody I could, from Keith Richards to the guy who built the three-foot stage. You can listen to the story now on the All Told Podcast. Get it at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zak. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, November 25th. Today, Michael Bloomberg is the latest Democrat to run for president. Why regulators can't keep a dangerous product off the market. And javelins in Ukraine. Mike Bloomberg started as a middle-class kid who had to work his way through college, then built a business from a single room to... Over the weekend, Michael Bloomberg announced that he was going to run for president after months of hemming and hawing over the decision, and, and he did it in a big way with an ad buy of more than $30 million across the country. Mike Bloomberg for president, jobs creator, leader, problem solver. It's going to take all three to build back a country. And make an early first impression on a what looks, at least at the moment, as sort of a long-shot late bid for the presidency. Michael Shearer covers national politics for The Post. Michael Bloomberg is a middle-class kid from Medford, Massachusetts, who, as his campaign ads say, made good, which means he turned himself into a billionaire 52 times over by selling technology, information technology, to Wall Street and traders in the finance industry. Uh, one of the wealthiest men in the world, somewhere between 9 and 11, depending on the day. He's also one of the biggest philanthropists in the United States, the biggest donor in the 2018 cycle to Democratic causes, and the former mayor of New York City. And I think it's worth pointing out that he ran for mayor of New York as a Republican, and he won twice, and then he ran for a third term as an independent. So why is he running now as a Democrat? Uh, the simplest or the most direct reason is that he thinks that's the only way he he can run for president right now. He doesn't have a path to win the Republican nomination. And he looked very closely at running as an independent for president in the last cycle and concluded that the risks were too high, that the, the two-party system makes a third-party run unlikely to succeed or, in, in that case, likely to elect the Republican. And And right now he is far more affiliated with the Democratic Party than than the Republican Party. So so he's decided he has to run inside the party structure so as not to allow his bid to help reelect Donald Trump, which is, as many Democrats now have it, his number one priority. So part of his strategy on how he sees a path toward becoming the Democratic nominee is based very explicitly on the fact that he is fabulously wealthy and that he can pay for all of it himself. That's right. And and I think, you know, the thing that people don't recognize about Michael Bloomberg and, and what it means to have $52 billion is that it's the, the scale gets really big really quick. It's different from, you know, one person, say, having $1 and you having $50. When, when you're talking in billions, you're talking sort of in exponential amounts because there are not a lot of things you can buy for that much money. Uh, if you go back into the 2016 election, 
all the candidates combined spent about uh, $1.5 billion. Uh, if you add in what super PACs spent, what parties spent, you've got a couple billion dollars more. Bloomberg could match all of the spending in 2016, and it would be less than, you know, probably around 10% of his net worth. It wouldn't be money he missed. Bloomberg's advisors talk about them not having a budget, and they're unapologetic about that, that, that their competitive advantage here is that they will be able to buy their way into um, the minds of America, and they've started with a $30 million-plus ad buy over a little more in a week, which is probably, I mean, we'll have to wait for the receipts to come in, but probably the biggest political ad purchase that's ever been placed in American history. And that's just the first week. So we're just getting going. So is he even planning to do any fundraising at all? Or is he straight up like, I can finance this entire campaign myself? He has sworn off any fundraising at all. He's not going to take any contributions. Now, that doesn't mean he's not going to be selling T-shirts on his website or mugs. You'll still be able to buy merchandise. But he has no fundraising operation. He's he's trying to recruit people to be volunteers for him. He's trying to build an email list, which is typically what candidates do to raise money. But he won't convert any of that into campaign donations. But won't that be a problem for him? Because if he wants to get on the debate stage... One of the requirements for getting on that stage is having demonstrated support from people who want to give you money. So if he's not getting money from those people, is he basically accepting the fact that he won't be participating in debates? I think that's right. I think he has accepted that fact that he's definitely not going to participate in the December debate. He's almost certainly not going to participate in the January debate because it'd be very hard for the party to suddenly allow people to join just because they have gobs and gobs of money. So he's going to have to run without that. Now, once we get into the debates in February and March and April, and there are debates scheduled once the voting begins, I think it is likely that the debate criteria would change to include people who are winning delegates. It would be really odd for the Democratic Party to be having debates and not including people who are going to be represented at their convention. But that's a big if. We don't know whether this campaign will really get that sort of traction. Well, that feels like the big question here, especially because he is arriving in this campaign season so late. Why is he running and who does he think his supporters will be? So the reason he's running is is twofold. He, he sees Donald Trump as an existential threat that, that needs to be defeated. He's committed a lot of money in the last cycle to win the House for Democrats, to put a check on President Trump's power. Secondly, though, what he says has changed in the last six months is that he now looks at the Democratic field with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders still very strong on the left and former Vice President Joe Biden weak in the sort of middle lane of the party. And he thinks that the field is too weak right now, that, that the calculus has changed and there is a route for him to step in and that he would be, and he will make this case, a better general election candidate against President Trump than, than any of the candidates now running. But the fact that he is financing this whole thing himself, I can imagine that this could be a very bad look from the perspective of a lot of voters. The fact that Bloomberg is very explicitly buying his way into this campaign. Will that be a hindrance for him? Yes, I think it will in a Democratic primary. And he's always said that the Democratic primary, the nomination process is harder for him, he thinks, than a, than a general election would be for him. It, it's not just that you know, there's a sort of abstract concern about a concentration of wealth in this country and economic inequality. It's that several candidates have specifically been targeting the billionaire class 
to rise through the ranks, and they've gotten traction. There's a lot of anger in the party right now at the idea that people with money, moneyed interests, have outsized sway in Washington, are able to effectively write bills and and have their way, and it's been happening for quite a while. That That is the message of uh, Vermont Senator Sanders. We do not believe that billionaires have the right to buy elections. That is why multi-billionaires like Mr. Bloomberg are not going to get very far in this election. The Bloomberg play here is based on a number of uh, hypotheticals. He he is assuming that Bernie Sanders continues to remain very strong with that message and continues to get delegates, but that the message is not able to expand beyond Sanders' core base. And that a, a bigger part of the party really wants just a winner and someone who looks like a safe bet. And Bloomberg will say, I think explicitly, not only have I proven you know, I can do stuff, I've, I've been successful as a mayor, I've been successful as a businessman, um, but I can pay for this too. Michael, thank you so much. Thank you. Michael Shear covers national politics for The Post. A generation ago, like everyone knew what a crib bumper was because they were extremely popular. And these these basically a, a padded device for wrapping around the edge of a crib that the idea was to keep the kid from getting his foot stuck through the slats or if he were to tumble over and hit his head. And, and they're still used widely today. I think the estimates are that about a million are sold a year. Todd Frankel reports on consumer product safety at The Post. Kanye West, uh, when he and his wife had had a baby earlier this year, you know, they put a picture on Instagram with this huge crib bumper around their baby. And, you know, people online were like, oh, my God, what are you doing? You know. And the reason people were freaking out about this picture that Kim Kardashian had posted was because there is growing awareness about the dangers of crib bumpers. In the past 30 years, more than 40 babies have died in cribs with bumpers. They've come under attack from uh, public health authorities who are just like, these are not safe. Why wouldn't they be safe if they're just like a little kind of mattress padding on a crib? Basic reason is because babies suffocate really easily. Unexpected sleep deaths are the leading cause of unintentional death for babies under one. And it's basically because babies are small and they can't turn their heads very well. Which means that crib bumpers pose a significant risk. They're still being aggressively marketed and sold. They're certainly part of the public's consciousness in terms of baby showers and, you know, sort of layette sets and that sort of thing. But they are a completely unnecessary product that serves no true function, yet poses a real and present danger to babies in cribs where they're being used. So my name is Ben Hoffman. I'm a general pediatrician at the Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon, and I'm the chair of the American Academy of Pediatrics Council on Injury, Violence, and Poison Prevention. Cribs are now safe enough after 2011 that the need for crib bumpers to protect kids has been surpassed by the risk that they pose to kids in terms of suffocation and sleep-related death. Even so, crib bumpers are still popular, and you can still buy them in stores and online. But one agency has the power to change this. The Consumer Product Safety Commission is the government agency that's supposed to protect children from hazardous toys, bassinets, and other products. And Todd says that many CPSC workers believe that crib bumpers should be taken off the market. 
they think they're dangerous. You know, when someone at the Consumer Product Safety Commission sees a dangerous product, they want to act. And in this case, though, there's this interesting dynamic where there's an internal conflict, a controversy about whether these products are truly to blame for these deaths. And it's created an impasse where the agency just hasn't taken action. The agency has two options, essentially. Pass rules, safety rules, mandating improvements and how they should be sold and what they should look like, or they could ban them. And in this case, uh, because the agency can't decide whether they're in fact dangerous, they've done nothing, which is in some people's view, you know, the worst possible outcome where, you know, not only are they allowing them to be sold, but there's actually no federal regulation about making them safer. Within this team, this health scientist directorate, um, there's one lead scientist. Her name's Suad Wana Nakamura, and she's been there forever, and she's well-respected, and she's influential. And, you know, according to everyone I spoke with, she simply does not believe that crib bumpers are killing these kids, that there's other factors to be in play here. So I talked to people who've talked to her about this, and I've read a lot of what she's written about on this topic. And it basically just comes down to a difference of opinion. Now, it's an outlier opinion, um, you know, considering that the American Academy of Pediatrics and others, the Centers for Disease Control, don't agree with her. But it's on this one case, and actually on infant sleep products in general, things like um, cribs or inclined sleepers, crib bumpers, where her opinion is such an outlier that it's sort of become the focal point for this criticism. Why do the people at the Consumer Product Safety Commission feel differently? Why are they in the minority on this? At sort of the heart of the story is that there's almost a confusion or almost like a black box of understanding what they are seeing that's different than pretty much the medical community as a consensus agree as a danger. And, and the closest thing that comes to is that they just basically fundamentally disagree with the idea that babies can suffocate against these products, that this is a something that actually can happen. It's such an outlier, and it's actually caused incredible internal strife within the, at the CPSC as well, you know, just trying to figure out, like, there's a lot of people there within the agency who disagree with this team of scientists who don't think this can happen. And that's one of the problems, again, with infant sleep deaths is that, you know, so many different factors can come into play with this. You have a product and then you also have, you know, if a baby is asleep on his stomach, more likely to suffocate, you know. And so you have these multiple risk factors coming into play. So she, this one Nakamura, the scientist there, just has come down the side of these products are not to blame, that there's something else causing these deaths. So how are people reacting to this? So some states have decided to take medicine into their own hands and pass crib bumper bans. Uh, Chicago did it. Maryland did it. Ohio. And actually this summer, New York State joined in and said, you know, we're not going to wait around for the feds. We'll do it ourselves. Those are bans on selling crib bumpers in stores in that state. Exactly. Right. You know, in Ohio, they did it because they had an infant mortality problem. And one of the solutions that they identified was that, all right, well, let's take this product off the market, at least locally, so that we can lower the number of, you know, unintentional sleep deaths. You know, if the agency's not going to act, um, there's a bill in Congress that realistically probably will not pass that would call for a nationwide ban. And then within the agency as well, this issue has come back up, right? So you have the scientists who said, all right, crib bumpers are not to blame. And that is sort of undercut efforts to do regulation at their level, but they are actually now trying to turn to outside experts, have them come into the agency and sort of present a case that will allow them to move towards rulemaking, either a strict regulation or even a nationwide ban on these products. What does the CPSC say about these efforts to basically overrule them and overrule their take on this? They realize that they don't do the rulemaking. So they have put forth a proposed set of regulations for the product, but that still has made the 
commissioners at the agency, the people actually run the agency, uncomfortable. Um, and they would actually like to see a full ban. It was actually very interesting. A few years ago, shortly after the scientists at the agency said, hey, these products aren't that dangerous, the commissioners came out with a statement saying, we disagree. We think you actually did this wrong. You know, so basically criticizing their own scientists and recommending to the public that they don't use this product. And so put the Consumer Product Safety Commission in a very weird position where they were not passing a regulation, they were not passing a ban, but they were still telling the public, don't use this product. Hmm. That does seem awkward. It does. It's, a, you know, and as a parent, right, what do you do? You're not paying attention to this debate, most likely, because it's quite technical and quite heavy, you know, and until I started digging into it, I didn't know anything about it. But so you have the agency on one hand, not moving towards any regulation, not moving towards a ban, but then also telling folks not to use the product. Um, and so there's a question about whether there's something about infant sleep products that really gives this agency trouble. What do you think this story says about the larger issue of the role of the government in regulating consumer products? I think particularly with infant sleep products, right, where you have a very vulnerable population, right, babies, and you have this very tough science because the deaths are not well understood, right? So you have, just as a quick aside, if you go back to the early 90s when this back-to-sleep campaign started off and they said, all right, put your babies asleep on their back to avoid SIDS, you know, sudden infant death syndrome. And when it comes to sleeping, always, always, always place baby on his or her back. And that is credited with cutting the SIDS rate in half. A huge success, right? But doctors still don't understand why that works, really. And I think infant sleep products in particular, you know, present this challenge to the agency where they are not able to address the dangers in a way that normally satisfies their burden of proof that they would need for to take action. But I think there's a growing sense that they might need to judge it on a different way. That, you know, these products and the population is so fragile and vulnerable that they need to take a harder look at these products and maybe go further than they normally would than, say, with a lawnmower or with, you know, a power tool. Todd, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Todd Frankel is a features reporter for The Post's financial desk. And now, one more thing about a thing that's come up a lot over the past couple of weeks during impeachment inquiry hearings. You spoke extensively about the importance of defensive lethal aid to Ukraine, specifically javelins. The Trump administration's decision to arm Ukraine with javelins. The symbolism of it, that the United States is providing javelins to Ukraine. And javelins, they're actually the thing that set up the moment that prompted the impeachment inquiry in the first place. So javelins came up right before the fateful moment in the call between President Trump and President Zelensky in July. Uh, Zelensky was saying that he was interested in buying more javelin anti-tank missiles. And that's when Trump said, can you do us a favor, though? So as the impeachment inquiry has been going on, I have been wondering, what actually are javelins? And why does everyone keep talking about them? My name is Alex Horton. I'm a reporter at The Washington Post. Before my career as a reporter, uh, I served in the U.S. Army uh, as an infantryman. And as luck would have it, I was selected with three of my buddies in my platoon, and we went to a two-week javelin course. I am probably the only person in this newsroom and maybe like in a mile radius that has actually held this thing. So what is a javelin? 
the Javelin is the the Cadillac of anti-tank missiles. You know, if you're like on a, a schoolyard battlefield and, you know, you're lining up like dodgeball and it comes time to pick your anti-tank weapon, the Javelin is what you want to pick. Layman's term is a heat-seeking missile that could be carried by two soldiers. It's lightweight enough to put on your shoulder and you can walk around with it or get it from a vehicle and take it with you somewhere. It's very exact. It's very precise. Like it, it seems sort of like a David and Goliath kind of weapon where it's like you can just have one guy standing on the ground who can effectively fend off an entire tank. Right. So the war in Ukraine uh, started five years ago in, in 2014. Uh, so the Obama administration provided what was referred to as non-lethal aid, you know, logistics, equipment, Humvees, uh, things like that. Then the Trump administration uh, decided they wanted to take it a step further and provide lethal aid, which is what the Ukrainians had been asking for all along. So last year, Ukraine bought 210 javelins and 37 launch units. Uh, and in the call with Trump, you know, Zelensky said he, he desired to buy more. But the thing that I didn't realize until talking to Alex was that the javelins are not part of the alleged quid pro quo. So when we talk about Ukrainian aid getting held up, that's the heart of this inquiry. We're talking about everything besides javelins. We're talking about uh, machine guns, sniper rifles, uh, those radios, those drones. So then why are people talking about it during the impeachment hearings if the military aid to Ukraine that was held up, that that doesn't actually include money for javelins? Well, I think it's because it's it, it speaks to the javelins being symbolic in the first place. Nothing says you care more about the Ukrainians than sending javelin anti-tank missiles. Do you agree with um, me? And the Republicans like to bring up javelins because Trump did something that Obama wouldn't, which was give them tank-busting weapons. Certainly, uh, those work a lot better in stopping Russian tanks than the blankets that were sent by the Obama administration. Your point is taken. I'll yield back. Thank you. The, the funny thing here is that there is a ton of political and diplomatic and military resources gone to talking about the javelin and getting javelins to Ukraine. And the thing is, they're not being used. So one of the conditions of selling javelins was all the javelins are locked up and stored in the western part of the country where the fighting is not, uh, where Americans can conduct inventory and where they could be secured and protected because there is always a chance that anything you give to anyone, friend, murky ally, that it will end up in the hands of someone you don't want it to. Um, so that is why there's a lot of precautions, and that is why they're so far away. If Russian armored vehicles or a tank battalion decides right now to break through the lines, I think people have like this sort of picture of a javelin ready to go, set up on top of an ammo can in a trench line, uh, ready to be picked up at a moment's notice, and that's just not reality. They are not going to face javelins. Then why is there so much discussion about whether or not Ukraine can have javelins or that we would give them more javelins if they're not really a thing that's useful in the state of the conflict right now? It's more of a political symbol than a strategic or even a tactical one. Uh, domestically in, in Ukraine, it also you know, is, a, is a signal to, to Moscow that they have friends and the Americans are going to be here and they will give what the Ukrainians want. 
Moscow understands this, Kiev understands this, and now Washington understands this, that the Javelin is not just an anti-tank missile, it is a symbol of American influence and power. Alex Horton is a general assignment reporter for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. And in honor of the coming Thanksgiving holiday, we'd like to express our appreciation to Post Reports listeners who have taken the time to rate and review us on their podcast apps. It helps other people find our show. And we love hearing feedback from people like Ali RP, who wrote in a review that she came for the news but stayed for the journalism. She's 25, and she says that our storytelling made her decide to invest in a subscription to the Washington Post for the first time. So, Allie, we are extra thankful for you. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.